Welcome to Music History Monday for September 4th, 2023. I'm Bob Greenberg, and the title for today's podcast is On the Spectrum. If you haven't already, please consider joining me on my subscription site at patreon.com slash robertgreenbergmusic, where I blog, vlog, podcast, pontificate, review, and bloviate four to six times a week. We mark the birth on September 4th, 1824, 199 years ago today, of the composer and organist Josef Anton Bruckner in the Austrian village of Ansfelden, which today is a suburb of the city of Linz. He died in the Austrian capital of Vienna on October 11th, 1896, at the age of 72. It was Gustav Mahler, 1860-1911, who famously said that Bruckner was, quote, half simpleton, half God, unquote. Strangeness. I would be so bold as to suggest that there is such a thing as a strangeness spectrum, a scale of personality oddness that stretches from the merely quirky to the genuinely weird. If we were to consider such a spectrum as a scale from 1 to 10, with 1 being quirky or idiosyncratic, 5 being eccentric or odd, and 10 being really weird or bizarre, then the personality of the composer and organist Anton Bruckner would lie at about an 11, an off-the-charts, downright wacky, and even at times unnervingly creepy. I know, I know. Many of you are probably thinking something on the lines of, so what? He was a professional composer. Show me a major composer besides, perhaps, Josef Haydn and Antonin Dvorak, who wasn't a bit crazy. True that. But even by the standards of professional composers, Bruckner was in a class by himself, perhaps the strangest and most unlikely person to ever become a high-end professional composer. Attempting to reconcile this genuinely bizarre country bumpkin with the complex, sprawling, often magnificent symphonic and religious music he composed remains a challenge. Brief Biography He was born in the Austrian town of Ansfelden near Linz. His father was the town schoolmaster and the church organist, and it was at the local Catholic church that Bruckner heard his first music sang as a choir boy, and learned to play the violin and organ. The church was Bruckner's refuge and solace for the entirety of his life. He was as devout a man as we will ever find outside a monastery or a foxhole. He believed completely that everything he did should honor God. Late in his life, he told Gustav Mahler, quote, Yes, my dear, now I have to work very hard so that at least my tenth symphony will be finished. Otherwise, 
I will not pass before God, before whom I shall soon stand. He will say, Why else have I given you talent, you son of a bitch, than you should sing my praise and glory? But you have accomplished much too little. Unquote. Yeah, we can only hope that God deemed Bruckner's nine symphonies as being adequate, because he died before completing his tenth. Bruckner's statement to Mahler, made in all seriousness, reveals what was a pathological inferiority complex. As a student teacher between the ages of 17 and 19, he was constantly and mercilessly humiliated by his boss, one Franz Fuchs, a teacher at the Windhag School in the Austrian town of Windhag. But Bruckner never complained or rebelled. Rather, characteristically, he submitted to any and all abuse without a whimper. So convinced was he of his own inferiority. Everyone who knew him said the same thing, that he was a classic country bumpkin, naive, simple, overly trusting, and deferential. According to his biographer Derek Watson, Bruckner was, quote, humble, straightforward, uncomplicated, unpretentious, and unsophisticated. He was warm-hearted and childlike, though his proverbial naivete should not be confused with a lack of intelligence. His rural background was evident throughout his life. City life never suited him, and the little countryman, habitually dressed in a bulky black suit and a wide-brimmed black hat, was in sharp contrast with the style and elegance of fashionable Vienna, where he lived from 1868 to his death in 1896. Bruckner was pious to a fault. Raised in the Catholic Church, Bruckner followed to a T the Church's proscription against sexual relations not sanctified by marriage. Since he never married, well, we can do that math. However, we should note that Bruckner never stopped trying to find Ms. Wright, and until his death he was known for stopping attractive young women on the street, women half his age and younger, and out of the blue, proposing marriage. This would get him tossed in the Huskow today for harassment, but at the time it simply added to the hilarity surrounding Bruckner's reputation. In 1845, at the age of 21, Bruckner settled into the quiet life, like his father before him, of a provincial school teacher and organist. With nothing else to do in his spare time, he took correspondence courses. Among them, was a correspondence course in harmony and counterpoint with Simon Sector, 1788-1867, who was a professor at the Vienna Conservatory. Bruckner, who as a child had practiced the organ up to 12 hours a day, often worked seven hours a day on the exercises sent to him. Sector, a famously hard taskmaster, was taken aback by Bruckner's fanatical dedication to his correspondence course. One day, Sector received from Bruckner 
17 music manuscript books crammed with exercises, prompting Sector to write Bruckner a letter in which he told him that he was endangering his mental and physical health by driving himself so hard. Anton Bruckner would likely have spent the rest of his life a correspondence course junkie, living and working in complete obscurity, if not for his epiphany, the eureka moment he experienced in 1853 during his 39th year. That's when he heard a performance of Richard Wagner's Tannhäuser in Linz. Bruckner was doubly blown away, not just by Tannhäuser itself, but by the realization that what made Tannhäuser great was that it broke so many of the rules of harmony and counterpoint he had so carefully studied and mastered. From that moment in 1863, Bruckner embraced Wagner's music with a mania that changed his life, convinced that it was his mission in life to become the Wagner of the Symphony Hall, he composed a symphony in C minor in 1866. Once he composed his next symphony, this C minor symphony became his symphony number one. The C minor symphony received its premiere in Linz in 1868, a year that saw Bruckner's life change overnight. Here's what happened. In early 1867, soon after completing his symphony number one in C minor, Bruckner suffered a complete mental collapse. According to biographer Derek Watson, it was brought on by, quote, a combination of overwork, fears for the future, anxieties about gaining recognition as an artist, and frustrated attempts at love, unquote. Talking of madness and threatening suicide, Bruckner was admitted to a sanitarium in the Austrian spa town of Bad Kreuzen on May 8, 1867. It was there that he developed one of the many quirks that would eventually come to dominate his life, numeromania, which for Bruckner manifested itself as, quote, an obsessive neurotic condition that impelled him to count the leaves on trees, grains of sand, the stars, logs in a woodpile, and so on." Unquote. The British filmmaker Ken Russell even made a film about Bruckner's stay at the sanitarium and his numeromania, a movie entitled The Strange Affliction of Anton Bruckner made in 1990. An edited version of the movie is linked to this post. On August 8, 1867, after a stay of exactly three months, Bruckner left the sanitarium, restored and relaxed. Feeling a confidence new to him, Bruckner applied for two jobs, as a lecturer in harmony and counterpoint at Vienna University, and for any position available at the Hofkapelle, the Imperial Chapel in Vienna. Alas, both applications were rejected, and we couldn't blame Bruckner if he believed that at the age of 43, his professional future was kaput.
and then. And then lightning struck. On September 10th, 1867, Bruckner's correspondence course professor, Simon Sector, who was a professor at the Vienna Conservatory, died at the age of 78. On his deathbed, or so goes the legend, Sector recommended that his single most devoted student, Anton Bruckner, who had studied with him via the mail from 1855 to 1861, should be his successor at the Vienna Conservatory. On April 12, 1868, an utterly gobsmacked Anton Bruckner was officially offered Simon Sector's former post as a professor at the Vienna Conservatory. Despite the fact that he was filled with misgivings about accepting the post, except that he did. Just 27 days later, on May 9, 1868, Bruckner conducted the premiere of his Symphony No. 1 in C minor in Linz. Despite what was called an inadequate performance, the symphony was well received. And there it is, this organ-playing, correspondence-course-trained composer, who had only started composing seriously in 1861 at the age of 37, who had come to believe at the age of 43 that his professional life was over, suddenly had a professional gig at the Vienna Conservatory and a successful symphonic premiere under his belt. On October 1st, 1868, Bruckner took up his teaching duties there in Vienna, where he would live out the remaining 28 years of his life. Symphonies and eventual fame. In Vienna, Bruckner continued to compose his Wagner-inspired symphonies. All in all, they were not well received. For example, the Viennese critic Eduard Hanslick, who along with Johannes Brahms ruled the Viennese music scene, wrote that in Bruckner's Symphony No. 3 of 1873, quote, Beethoven's Ninth meets Wagner's Walkur, and is trampled under her hooves." Unquote. Well, ouch! It wasn't until 1884, when Bruckner was 60 years old, that he began to taste real success. His Seventh Symphony was premiered in Leipzig under the baton of the great and famous Arthur Nikisch, 1855-1922, who afterwards declared that, quote, Since Beethoven, there has been nothing that can even approach it. From this moment, I regard it as my duty to work for the recognition of Bruckner, unquote. Maestro Nikisha's enthusiasm was not universal. When Bruckner's Symphony No. 7 was performed in Vienna, Eduard Hanslick's review gave voice to critical issues that continue to trouble listeners to this day. Quote, like every one of Bruckner's works, the symphony contains ingenious inspirations, interesting and even pleasant details, here for six, for eight bars. But in between are interminable stretches of darkness, leaden boredom, and feverish over excitement." Certainly, 
Bruckner's experience as an organist colored his symphonic music. His propensity for huge, multicolored sonorities and his predilection for lengthy, slow, hymn-like sections of music reflect the music he played as an organist. Bruckner's music is rarely fast or even moderately paced. His rather leisurely sense of development, what a Bruckner fan would call his deliberately meditative musical spirit, was for some an object of ridicule. The Viennese called him the adagio componist, the adagio composer, because even his first movements felt slow. Wagnerian in conception, the length of Bruckner's symphonies would seem, at times, not always justified by their musical materials. Bruckner in Vienna Bruckner's Jethro Clampett persona was a source of great humor among the sophisticates of Vienna. Oh, so many Bruckner stories, so little time. Speaking to his bumpkinness, here's a story that everyone in Vienna would have heard in 1881. On February 20th, 1881, at the final rehearsal before the premiere of Bruckner's Fourth Symphony, Bruckner walked up to the conductor, the wealthy and world-famous Hans Richter, 1843-1916, and tipped him. Quote, Take this, Bruckner said, pressing a Thaler coin into the great Richter's hand, and buy yourself a beer. The dumbfounded conductor looked at the coin, put it in his pocket, and later had it put on his watch chain, unquote. Uh, for our information, that Thaler coin was the Austrian equivalent of an American silver dollar. For our further information, tomorrow's Dr. Bob Prescribes post will feature Bruckner's Symphony No. 4. Numeromania. As we previously observed, among the neuroses Bruckner began to experience during his breakdown in 1867 was numeromania, that is, he became obsessed with numbers and counting. Even though he managed to overcome the suicidal funk that put him in a sanitarium there in 1867, Bruckner's obsession with numbers and counting never went away. According to Derek Cook, quote, he kept a careful list of the number of prayers he said each day and the number of times he repeated a particular prayer. He counted statues during his walks in parks and would start his walk all over again if he thought he had missed one. He was obsessed with the need to discover the numbers, characteristics, and substance of inanimate objects, such as the ornamental tops of the municipal towers in Vienna. In his diary, he recorded all the names of the girls who had attracted him, unquote. Yeah, we would note that cumulatively, the latter, the list of girls, was very long. The modern consensus is that Bruckner's numeromania strongly suggests that among everything else, he suffered from OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder. Non-sexual necrophilia. Anton Bruckner had a fascination 
a fetish, really, for dead bodies, a fetish that to my mind was simply not healthy. That is my decidedly non-professional, non-clinical determination. After having described this fetish, we'll see if you agree with me. Bruckner's mania for dead bodies made him a first-class ambulance chaser. Nothing seemed to excite him more than being able to observe a freshly dead corpse lying on a slab. In 1881, after a disastrous theater fire in Vienna, Bruckner hurried to the mortuary in order to examine firsthand the charred bodies of the victims. He attended funerals obsessively, whether or not he actually knew the person who had died, because open casket viewings were standard in Catholic Viennese funerals. Even more, Bruckner would seem to have hardly ever missed any of the public dissections of cadavers that were all the rage in 19th century Vienna, as they were across Europe at the time. When Bruckner's mother died in November of 1860, he had her corpse photographed on her deathbed. He hauled this framed photo around with him for the rest of his life, hanging it in his various teaching rooms, where he could contemplate it for hours on end during his workday, observes the pianist and musicologist Dr. George Predota, quote, he, meaning Bruckner, did not have a single image of his mother when she was alive, just the eyes of the dead woman staring at him and his students, unquote. When the corpses of both Beethoven and Schubert were exhumed on October 18, 1863, in order to transfer them to Vienna's principal cemetery, the Zentralfriedhof. Bruckner traveled to Vienna for the occasion and was at the front of the line when they pried open the rotting caskets. According to eyewitnesses, Bruckner, quote, fingered and kissed the skulls of both composers. Unquote. In the case of Beethoven's skull, we can only wonder which piece Bruckner kissed, as the skull had been cut into nine pieces during Beethoven's autopsy back on March 27, 1827, an autopsy conducted the day after his death on March 26th. During his examination of Beethoven's corpse, Bruckner momentarily managed to lose his pince-nez glasses in his excitement when they fell into Beethoven's casket and got lost among his bones. The stories go on. Bruckner requested permission to see the skull of a dead cousin, though for whatever reason that request was refused. After the assassination of the Austrian Habsburg-born Emperor Maximilian I in Mexico, in 1867, the corpse was shipped home to Vienna. For a deadhead like Bruckner, it was an occasion that could not be missed, and he anxiously wrote his friend Rudolf Wienwurm, quote, At all costs, I want to see the body of Maximilian. Please send someone trustworthy to the palace, or even better, make enquiries at the office of the Oberhofmeister whether it will be possible to view Maximilian's body in an open coffin or under glass. Then 
Please inform me by telegram so that I do not come too late. I ask you most urgently for this information." Unquote. We don't know if Bruckner was successful in his attempt to view Maximilian's corpse, but we can in a photo owned by the Metropolitan Museum of Art. Bruckner left detailed instructions for his own post-mortem treatment. He was to be embalmed using formalin by the Austrian pathologist Professor Richard Poltoff, 1858 to 1924, and then his corpse was to be displayed in Vienna for five days. Afterward, his body was to be transported to Linz and then buried under his favorite organ at St. Florian Monastery Church of the Lateran Rule. Conclusion Music critic Tom Service sums things up for us. Quote, Anton Bruckner was a credulous yokel who propositioned girls half his age, a death-obsessed ghoul who kept a photo of his mother's corpse, a cranky backwards-looking obsessive, and the composer of some of the 19th century's greatest, grandest, and most ambitious symphonies." Unquote. Yep, Bruckner was all of these things. And there is the conundrum. Where did Bruckner's often extraordinary music actually come from? It is a question we'll attempt to answer in tomorrow's Dr. Bob Prescribes post. Thank you. To sample and download one or all of my many courses on subjects musical produced by The Great Courses slash The Teaching Company, please visit my website at robertgreenbergmusic.com.